All right, let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Acts chapter number 3. Acts chapter number 3. I have what, uh, at least it's my intent, a simple message for you this morning. Now, simple doesn't mean that it's not important, but I will say this, there are a lot of things in our chapter that I thought about, things that I could preach, things that I should preach, but I also realize that I can't do it all in one sermon. Sometimes I try to anyways, but uh, for some reason the Holy Spirit just kept impressing it upon me for today to just keep it very, very simple. I like preaching. I like putting together sermons. I like it. I like sermons that are alliterated, where you have different points that a lot of times the point will start with the same letter. But sometimes I go to outlining and try to make points that start with the same letter, and I find that the outline is pulling me in a direction that I didn't feel the Holy Spirit was directing me before I started trying to put together an outline. And uh, if you've ever preached before, you know that that sometimes can be the case. Outlines are good, alliteration is good, sometimes it helps us remember the points because they all kind of sound similar and so forth. But sometimes we just need to look at the Scripture and let the Scripture speak for itself. And regardless, one thing that I have determined is that if I do use an outline, I want to make sure that the outline is saying what the Lord's wanting me to say and not taking me off course. And that's very, very easy to do. Acts chapter number 3, if you will, follow along with me as we begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple." who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked, and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, 
when he was determined to let him go, but ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Let's ask the Lord's blessings on the message this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you once again, asking your blessings upon this time together, this great chapter out of the book of Acts, this story of this lame man, how you used Peter and John to heal this man. His life was changed. Lord, you used it to get a hold of the rulers and the people that had gathered around. They saw the miracle that was done in the name of Jesus. And Lord, it interested them. It gave Peter the opportunity to give them the news that they needed to hear. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that we've got a message, Lord, that's still relevant today, a message that changes lives, a message that gives us soundness and strength, just as it did this lame man. I thank you, Lord, for the power that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save our souls, to give us a home in heaven, and to change our lives. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction, I'd like to say, first of all, there are several things that are still relevant in the passage that we just read that were relevant in Acts chapter number 1 and Acts chapter number 2. One of them being that at this point in church history, there is still a kingdom of heaven emphasis. And I remind you of something that I have said previously, that the kingdom of heaven is not the same as the church. The church is the church, and the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven. The Jews were looking for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was 
their Messiah, but they rejected their Messiah. He came and he will one day be their king. They were looking for someone to rescue them from the Romans. They were looking for a king to reestablish their kingdom. And that kingdom of heaven, if you don't differentiate, if you don't rightly divide the difference between the church and the kingdom of heaven, if you get those two things confused, then much of the New Testament is going to be mixed up. And if we have it mixed up in our understanding, our theology is going to be mixed up as well. Very important factor that we rightly divide the difference between those two entities. All right, so there's still a kingdom of heaven emphasis. It's still being offered to the Jews. The message is slightly different because there's a lot of things about the church age that has yet to be revealed. Also, I'd like to remind you that there are apostolic signs that are being given to the Jews. We saw several weeks ago that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. If we don't understand that principle, then the confusion of the modern tongues movement will remain confusing. We saw some absolute things from the Scripture several weeks ago that clarifies, that gets rid of a lot of the controversy that is caused by some of these apostolic sign and wonders confusion. You know, I think about the day and age that we live in. We just read about a man whose life was changed. You know, the early apostles and the early Christians... In fact, during different church age period, when the church was strong, when the church was spiritual, God's people had a desire to do something for the Lord. But it seems like in the last century, that desire to do something for Christ has somewhat digressed into things that are important, but not as important. I'll give you an example. Going from doing something to wanting to know something. Now, I want to know what the Bible says. I want to understand the Word of God. I want to study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. I want to study and I want to know some things from the Word of God. But I also read that in Athens there were Grecians who had this desire that their whole life was spent trying to learn and hear something new. And so just that desire for knowledge in and of itself is not always a great thing. But you know, I think about the modern church today. We went from wanting to do something to wanting to know something that the average Christian today, all they really want is to feel something. And that's what church and that's what Christianity has become. It's just simply something for me to feel. And I want to say with all authority of Scripture that that is a digression of motivation. Our desire should be to serve and to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we should do something. Yes, we should know something. And if we do those things, we will feel something But it won't be looking for a feeling or something we have to drum up. It'll be something that is a byproduct of walking with Jesus Christ. 
You cannot skip that relationship with Christ. If you're looking for just your feelings to change, but you're not interested in your behavior changing, then you're barking up the wrong tree when it comes to true biblical Christianity. I want to preach to you for a few minutes on the subject, Spotlights on the First Miracle. Now, this isn't the first miracle, but it's the first apostolic miracle. God showed up in the previous two chapters, and the Bible says that they started speaking in other tongues and other languages, and that was very miraculous. But here we have Peter and John who... Through them, a miracle, an apostolic miracle, is actually performed. And throughout this spotlight, I'm going to bounce back and forth between the following subjects. We're going to take a look at the messengers, Peter and John. We're going to take a look at the man. That's this man. We don't know his name, but we know that for his entire life, people had been carrying him to the gate of the temple, and he would sit there day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, begging for someone to come by and give him a gift because he was poor. Then we're going to take a look at the miracle, what God did for this man, and then we're going to take a look at the message, and that message is not only relevant to the Jewish people in this day and age that we read of it, but it's also relevant to us today. So the first thing I want to focus our attention on is the messengers. Look with me at verse number 1. It says, once again, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. The ninth hour was three in the afternoon. The Jewish clock is a little bit different than our clock. When we think of the ninth hour, then typically we're thinking of either 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. But the ninth hour, the Jewish day, began at 6 in the morning. And so the ninth hour would have been 3 in the afternoon. And uh, I am told from Jewish tradition that there were two basic hours of prayer the third hour, 9 a.m., and the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. Here they are at 3 p.m., and you know what's interesting? Peter and John make quite an interesting uh, an interesting team. Early on in the time when Jesus was around and early on in his ministry, it seems like you always found, uh, you always found Peter and Andrew together. And then you'd find James and John, who were brothers. You'd find them together. And if you know anything about Peter and John, and probably with the exception of the Apostle Paul, we know more about them than any other of the disciples. If you know anything about them, you you find that they were so drastically different in personality and temperament. Peter was very impetuous. Peter was a go-getter. Peter was one of the kind of guys that he would, he would lead with his mouth every time. I mean, if there was, if he didn't know what to say, he'd think of something to say. John was more of the quieter type, and John was the sweetheart, the one that was close to the Lord, and whom the Lord, or he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it appears to me that you got one guy that's just that very, 
very type A personality in Peter. And then you got another guy that's a little bit more, um, maybe melancholy, a little bit more, not, not effeminate by any stretch of the imagination, but a guy who's just got a little bit quieter nature, personality, and temperament. I think that these two guys were always a little bit competitive toward one another. Remember after the resurrection that Peter looked at John and says, well, what's he going to do, Lord? And the Lord said, if he tarries till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. I think there was probably always a little bit of underlying competition when they heard about the, the, the empty, the tomb being empty. Remember they both ran to the tomb and John outran Peter. So John wasn't wasn't any weaker than Peter. He was just a different personality. And he outran Peter to the tomb, but when he got there, he couldn't he couldn't enter. He just couldn't bring himself to see what was going on. But not Peter. Peter just went crashing in. I heard a preacher preach a message that that John represents love. And Peter represents grace. And I think there's a lot of that. I think that's some pretty good description there. John is always talking about love, whereas Peter, the guy who messed up time after time and yet still recovered, he represents grace. Someone said that love will get you to the tomb, but only grace will get you in. It's kind of like our salvation. Love will get you to the cross. But only grace will get you to the power of that cross. What an interesting, interesting work team that Peter and John made. And I'm reminded how that in the Christian life, how that God can take and forge together two very different personalities. And you know what? Oftentimes our personality and temperament differences will cause us conflict. But with the Holy Spirit and with humility and with the grace of God, those same conflicts, we can end up complementing one another. I mean, man would look at this team of Peter and John and they say, that's a formula for disaster. They're going to end up killing each other. But because of the grace of God, they just ended up complementing one another and they ended up being a great team. You know, in your personal relationships, whether it be with your spouse, whether it be with your children, whether it be with your extended family members, let me remind you that peace and love and unity, getting along with one another is not dependent upon our quirks and our personalities. It's dependent upon the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. You know, by the, aren't you glad that God loves us and accepts us? I mean, He doesn't, He wants to change our behavior. He wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. But listen, when we become more like Jesus Christ, we still maintain at least a shadow of our own personality and identity. And I'm so glad for that. I'm glad that God doesn't, doesn't go throughout the church and have a cookie cutter and just make us all the same. I'm glad that you're not all like me because I know me. And trust me, there may be some things that uh, are okay. And the Bible says, uh, Paul said, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. But I got some things I got to be honest with you. I don't like about me. 
I certainly wouldn't want you to have to struggle with those same things. I'm a one-track-minded person. How many of you are one-track-minded? All right. Bunch of freaks. You know, that, that that's helpful sometimes. Man, I can, I can plow through and I can get her done. But the, the sad part is, is that everything else in life just starts falling apart. I just have a hard time always maintaining that balance because of this little one-track mind that I have. It seems among gender, uh, gender differences, God tends to make you ladies a little bit better multitaskers than us men. That's not all the way across the board, but as a general rule, my observation is that's the case. Maybe God made you ladies that way because you have to be stirring gravy while you got your baby here hanging on and probably, you know, putting a bottle in their mouth and you don't want to be changing diapers while you're stirring gravy, but I think you get the picture, right? I just think that it is such a blessing to watch how that God will take men and women that without the Holy Spirit, people that would end up just killing each other and actually turn them into a team where they love each other and just become a one-two punch and just do great things for the Lord. Isn't God good that He can do that? In our lives, he is not limited by our quirks and our personality. And boy, you're looking at a man that's very thankful for that. Now I'd like to focus our spotlight on the man here in our story. This lame man that sat at the gate in the temple. We saw here in verse number two that this man was lame from birth. He didn't know anything different in life. He had never walked and then lost the use of his legs. He was born lame without that use. He knew nothing different. But I'll tell you what he did know. He knew how to find a good spot to beg. He's begging here at the gate of the temple. Do you know when people come to worship God, typically... We come to worship God and it should bring out our most benevolent nature. Now I realize we live in a day and age here in America where we find beggars out in our community that really don't qualify to be beggars. Here's a man that's born lame and he's born in a generation that didn't have all of the welfare programs and the different things that our uh, our government and our country does to help people that are in need. And I, I'm, I think it's good that we have a country that will help a man when he's down. But I think it's bad in the sense that this welfare system has become so centralized in Washington that you've got people that are pushing papers behind a desk that are making decisions on who we help giving money, taxpayer money, to people that that person has never even met and interviewed them. It's just a name on a piece of paper. It's a a number. It's an applicant. I, I think that that's one area that our country would be much better off to be more localized in its benevolence. 
Do you know what? If I see somebody that's begging in our community and he's from our community, for the most part, I can find out if it's legitimate or not. And let me just say this from experience, more than nine out of ten are not legitimate. I've had times where I've actually seen them with their, their worn out cardboard sign that they roll up and put in their pocket when their shift is over. And that's kind of what it is. And I, I've sat in a parking lot and said, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna watch them without them knowing that I'm watching them. And, and you know what I have discovered that most of them are not genuine. They fall under the category of what the Scripture says, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. That's pretty, you see, that's pretty rough language. Well, that's God's language. Take it up with Him. But I will say this, it works. If a man gets hungry enough and he's able to work, he'll work. And I personally, I don't think that we're doing them any favor by handing them money so that they, you know, I have heard that many of those people make more money than many hardworking individuals. And you know what their talent is, is they just don't have any shame. Like, man, why, why would I want to go and work for a living and have to uh, have to submit to a boss who can have him tell me what to do when I can make 30 bucks an hour just for having the talent of not having any shame or self-respect. But back to our character here. He was lame from the birth, from birth. He didn't know any better. That's all that he knew. And in verse number three, he's looking up for these alms and he's begging his way through life because that's all that he knew because that's all that he could do. That's the only option that he had in order to put food in his belly today. He had to have been begging yesterday. And that was his lifestyle. Now we shift our spotlight back to the messengers. And they show up again here in verse number 4. It says, Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John and said, Look on us. This man who is laying here, he had to look up. Now, if I could draw a really good analogy, I think that it's important that we all understand that spiritually speaking, every single one of us are lame from birth. To be what we are supposed to be, to be righteous, to be holy, to satisfy the demands of a holy God, we are incapable. And the best that we can do, humanly speaking, is just show up at the house of God and beg for God to do something for us. And that's what this man is doing. And Peter fastened his eyes on him and says, look on us. For this man to look at Peter, he had to look up. And that's what we all need to do is learn how to look up and to get our hearts and our minds focused, not on us, not on this world around us, not our past as we preached last week, but our eyes to be focused upward 
Because beyond the eyes of Peter, the messenger, are the eyes of God, who's looking down on this unnamed man, getting ready to do something really, really wonderful in his life. I wonder, brothers and sisters, those of us that are saved, if a person who is spiritually lame were to look upon us, would they be able to see past us and see our Savior in us? Would they be able to see something in someone whose life is different, whose life has been drastically changed by our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God? This relationship between this man and these messengers, the dynamics just continue to unfold. We shift our spotlight back to this man. In verse number 5, we find that he was expecting to receive something totally different than what he got. He didn't know, he didn't even imagine or dream that these men would be able to give him the use of his legs back. He, he wasn't even thinking that. He just thought, maybe they'll give me a good, maybe they'll really be generous. Maybe they'll give me more than just a widow's mite, but maybe they'll, maybe they'll shell out one of those big coins. And I can live off of that for several weeks instead of just one meal worth. That's what he's looking for. But he didn't know that there was more to be received than what he had ever imagined. I think about Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Aren't you glad that we've got a God that can do far more than we can even ask or think? can't even imagine what God wants to do in our life. He's not Santa Claus in the North Pole that's reading our little wish list. Sometimes our little wish list, don't you know that God looks at our wish list? We may be shooting for the moon in our wish list. We may be praying to win the lottery. And God's looking at our list saying, no, I got something way better for you than that. You say, something better than winning the lottery? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Let me tell you, there's, there's people I know, some people in this congregation that are battling cancer. Hey, if you were to give them a choice between winning the lottery and having an absolute cure, not a remission, mind you, but an absolute cure for their cancer, I know what I would pick. I would say, I'll take the cure to my cancer any day. Sometimes we wish, we think we're shooting for the moon, and the Lord's just looking down and saying, you know what, I got something far, far better than that. The things that we think will bring us happiness. More often than not, we find that they just leave us more empty and frustrated. One thing I will say in verse number five, while this man was looking to, he was expecting to receive something different, I will say this. It says, he gave heed unto them. He listened. And you know what? People don't listen today. 
People are not good listeners when it comes to listening to God. I know sometimes just as a representative of God, being the preacher, boy, I find it sometimes frustrating when people won't listen to the preacher. Now, I don't always have it right. I've made some mistakes, but sometimes the preacher knows what he's talking about. I didn't hear many amens. That's all right. I'm not hurt. I'll get over it. (laughs) Eventually. But seriously, this is not a generation of good listeners. And we need to get better at listening. This man, he listened. He didn't know what to expect. He didn't even know Peter and John by name. He just heard their voice and Peter says, look on us. And he listened. Sometimes the Lord is trying to get our attention and we don't know what He's going to do in our life. We don't know what He wants to do. But until we start listening, we'll never know what He wants to do. In verse number 6, we can imagine that at least for a moment, maybe a second, maybe three seconds, that this feeling of disappointment instantly arose in his heart. When Peter began to say, silver and gold have I none. I've had people call the church and say, will you help me with this? Will you help me with that? People that we've never heard of. And I've known over the years that there are people that I think they have a list of churches on their speed dial. And it's kind of like running a route. It's like, well, let's try this church. Let's try this church. And eventually we'll, they'll get something. And I've had times where I I was kind, and I'd begin to talk to them in a kind way, and then when you just start saying those words that they realize that I'm not getting any money out of this, then all of a sudden their tune starts totally changing. I've had people, when I was so, I was kind, and as polite as I could be, I have had people start cursing me and tell me that I'm not Christian because I wouldn't give them a handout at their request. And, you know, in some ways, that's actually helpful because I don't know about you, I always struggle. I want to, I want to help everybody that needs help. And when I know that it's questionable that maybe somebody isn't the right person to be trying to help. I still always just feel a little bit bad about it. But when people respond that way, it just makes it easy. I feel really good about telling them no. It's like, yeah, I pegged that one right. And so it makes it easier. But don't you know that while this man probably wasn't angry like that, he wasn't going to say, well, you're not Christian, but probably just a little bit of, I'm not going to get anything. That disappointment. You know, sometimes, even though this was for seconds, you know, sometimes God will work in our life and He will allow us to go through a temporary disappointment so that He can give us something that's going to be a greater blessing than we ever imagined? Proverbs says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Listen, sometimes just that disappointment can just just really affect our spirit and affect our attitude. And 
It can just chip away at us. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But the beauty of that is, is that God is never late. And if God's going to do something in our life, He always does it at the perfect time. How often have I had a sick heart from deferment and disappointment? Thinking, God, are you ever going to answer this prayer? I thought that you were going to answer it, and it didn't happen, and just continually disappointed. And then God finally answered that prayer, and I'm able to look back and say, wow, God, you did some wonderful things in my life through that delay that could not have been accomplished without it. And when that desire comes, it truly became a tree of life. Not just something, a blessing that you're all excited about it today, but you forget about it tomorrow, but something that just continues to bear fruit in your life. Sometimes we're asking for a piece of fruit, and God says, I want to give you an orchard if you'll just wait for it. An orchard that will just continue giving you fruit year in and year out. That's our God. Don't be discouraged by temporary disappointment. Be faithful. This man here, he was disappointed, but not for very long. And that brings us to the spotlight on the miracle. In verse number 6, Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ. Now this is not some magical incantation. I um, I had a guy I went to school with. He wasn't a close friend, but... We did a few things together. We, uh, I was just in seventh or eighth grade. I don't remember which one. And uh, we would go up into the foothills where we lived in Idaho, and we'd go trout fishing. And uh, his his mom, uh, this guy's mom, he didn't have a dad. He was raised by his mom, and they were um, they were charismatic. And he went to the charismatic church. And my dad was the Baptist preacher in the town. I think there was only three churches in the whole town. And we went up fishing, and we're fishing this creek, and he had this little thing that he did. He'd say, um, I have dominion over the fish. I have dominion over the fish. Because in Genesis, it says that God put man in. You know, I'm just a seventh grader, and I thought, at first I thought, this is dumb. And then he started catching more fish than me. And so I said, started saying, I have dominion over the fish. I have dominion over the fish. You say, you, so you started catching more fish than him? Absolutely not. In fact, shortly after that, we're both chanting that, and none of us are catching any fish. So it was just kind of circumstantial. And it wasn't some magical little prayer that was prayed. When Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, it wasn't a magical incantation What he meant that in the name of Jesus Christ is that everything that is represented in that name. That's the person of Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jesus Christ. And when we pray in Jesus' name, do you know that you can pray over your food and you can say, Lord, I ask that you'd bless this food in Jesus' name. Amen. And you know that if you just think that you're saying the right words, but you didn't really pray that, you just said it, do you know that your food didn't get blessed? 
You say, wait a minute, I said the right prayer. That's why I'm not, I'm not a proponent of these churches where they read their prayers or they have canned prayers. I think what God's looking for is prayers from the heart. And when we say in the name of Jesus, we have to by faith be understanding that it's not just that my mouth said those words, but rather my mouth said it because my heart was believing in what those words represented. They represented the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In verse number 7, we see that this is not some vague trick like many of the charismatic healing meetings. This wasn't somebody that came in and they had, you know, they, they had this big crowd gather and had somebody from the audience come up and get their forehead hit or get something poured over them and then declare to the entire congregation that all of their cavities just got filled. Something that somebody that, you know, supposedly couldn't walk, nobody in the auditorium knew who they were, and all of a sudden they get up. You know, many of those, many of those are just a show. And then after the man's healed, guess what the next move is? Pass the offering plate. That's not what's going on here, ladies and gentlemen. This is something that happened immediately. And by the way, it wasn't the faith of the man that got him healed. He didn't even know what was going on. And by the way, it wasn't the faith of Peter and John that got him healed. Peter said it was the faith of Jesus Christ, faith in His name that got Him healed. Jesus does the healing. And by the way, if these apostolic miracles were still working today, if I had them, I wouldn't be holding a meeting. I'd be going to the hospitals, wouldn't you? I'd be go finding those people. I'd find that person that's begging on the side of the road that's looking for a handout. And I'd go up and I'd say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you're healed. Go get a job. <laughs> and you know what they'd do? They'd go get a job. And they'd be thrilled over it. This happened instantly. Not a vague trick. This wasn't a show. It was visible. It was instant. And it had nothing to do with the lame man's faith. Look at verse number 8. It says, and he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. This was a genuine miracle. This isn't somebody that got healed of being lame, and, and, and the healing level went from being lame to being able to walk around with a limp. Listen, if I'm lame and I can't walk at all, I would be thrilled to be able to walk around with a limp, wouldn't you? But that's not what God did here. God totally healed him. He went from nothing he had never experienced, being able to stand on his own two feet, and this wasn't, okay, now you can walk. There's, you know, the nerves and muscles are functioning in your legs, now we've got to start rehab. 
and get your strength back. No, it was instant. He's walking and he's jumping, he's leaping up, and he is excited about it. Wouldn't you be? You know what, I go back to what I said earlier. Spiritually speaking, we are lame from birth. Morally, spiritually, we have no strength. If you recall the day that you got born again and you passed from death to life, Listen, I don't think you have to shout. I, I don't. I didn't shout when I got saved. But I will say this, when a person gets born again, he becomes a new creature. There's something that changed. And it's a wonderful and a glorious change. As we start to wind down our message today, I draw your spotlight back to the man in verse 9 through 10. We saw how that his testimony was powerful how that the people, the rulers and the leaders saw, wow, that is amazing. It drew attention to God. And as Christians, we need to have the same kind of a powerful testimony so that people can see God working in our life. How does the world see Christianity today? I say this with all sadness, with grief in my heart, that most of the world looks at Christianity today as a bunch of salesmen. Marketing. Talking about things like they're all neat and clever. And the world is smart enough to see there's no substance there. No substance. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that What God has done in many of our hearts, it's real and it's lasting and it's right. We're not perfect, but praise God, to be saved means to be regenerated and to have a brand new life in Christ. This man's gratitude and loyalty. Look at verse number 11 with me. It says, the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. Man, he hang, he, he, he he grabbed a hold of them and he didn't want to let go. You don't see that kind of loyalty and gratitude toward God's messengers today. Maybe it's the fault of today's messengers. I know a lot of us messengers, we're, we don't have the power that Peter and John had. Some of it's our fault, but perhaps much of it is due to the fact that people haven't received much of a miracle today. A lot of people start going to church and Their life is changed, but it's only changed socially. Maybe they get around a new group and they have peer pressure to do certain things and to stop doing certain things. And they just kind of conform to a new group of peers. But there hasn't been a genuine change in the heart. This man had a real miraculous change. Because of that, he had that loyalty and that affection and that gratitude toward the messengers that God had sent his way. Don't you know he was glad that Peter and John passed by his way that very day? And then in verse 12, we go back to our spotlight on the messengers. Peter says, when he saw it, he answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this or why look ye so earnestly on us? as that by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk. Peter had a what's-the-big-deal approach. He, he didn't try to market it. 
In fact, this man, he didn't say, you know what? Let's let this man give his testimony. He didn't try to make a Christian celebrity out of him. He didn't try to write a book so that he could sell it. He just simply said, what's the big deal? We didn't do it. Jesus did it. Don't, don't put your eyes on us. Put your eyes on Jesus Christ. I think that when all of this walking and leaping and praising of God was over, you know what I think Peter and John did? I think they just went on into the temple and went, went to praying like what they were there for to begin with. You don't have to embellish it. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to manufacture it if God is really in it. And wouldn't it be a joy and a blessing if the testimony of God's people, if the world could see that our profession of salvation, that, hey, the world sees that we're no longer lame spiritually and morally, but because of our relationship with Christ, we've become worshipers of Him. We've become benevolent people, good neighbors. We've shown kindness. We have control of our anger. We have ethics. We have character because Jesus Christ did it, not because we're good people. You know, when we know that Jesus did it, we don't have anything to be proud of. We just simply can say, to God be the glory. Don't look on, Peter said. We're nothing. Get your eyes upon Jesus Christ because He's the one that deserves all the credit and all the glory. In verse 13 through verse 15, if you'll recall, Peter begins to tell the crowd what they did in crucifying Jesus Christ. This message, as we focus on the message once again, it's a message of responsibility. He says to this crowd, you need to take responsibility for what you've done. And then he says in verse number 15, that Jesus, whom ye killed, God raised him from the dead. And you know, that's the message that is the saving message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 16 through 17, the messengers talk about relating to the people. Look at verse number 17. Peter says, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. Peter's preaching and he's rebuking them and telling them what they did, but he's doing it in kindness and he's doing it in humility. Peter's basically looking at this crowd just like Jesus looked at them and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter said, look, you need to understand what you did. You crucified your king. You crucified the Son of God. You consented. You and your rulers, you were in favor of that. You did it and you need to take responsibility. But he says, I know you, you didn't know what you were doing. Peter says, I understand that. I can relate to that. There were things that Peter had done that he didn't know and understand what he was doing. Aren't you glad that we've got a God that is so merciful that He'll forgive us even though we sin and mess up? We do things that we really don't even really understand what we're doing. You know, sin's not a little thing. Every single one of our sins, we are responsible for putting Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. You say, well, it's just a little white lie. Do you know and understand that if your little white lie would have been the only sin that any human being ever committed, 
that that still would have required Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the Calvary's cross just for your one sin? You say, well, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's a big deal to God. And it's a big deal to Jesus. Sin is not a little thing. It's a big thing. So the messengers could relate to the people in verse 18 through 19. Peter says it's a message of repentance. But then, I think one of the most beautiful things is the last verse of our chapter, verse 26, that shows us that it's a message of redemption. Unto you first, Peter says, unto you first God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. What's an iniquity preacher? You know, there's different kinds of sins. There's sin. Bible says all unrighteousness is sin. There's transgressions. When you know that God has drawn a line and you cross that line, you just transgressed the law of God. And then there's iniquity. I've heard all kinds of descriptions of iniquity. But iniquity goes beyond just simple act of sin. Iniquity is basically a lifestyle of doing things that don't honor the Lord or not doing things that we ought to be doing. It's just the, it's just the web that we get entangled in in our life as we continue to transgress and sin. And then all of a sudden our life is unequal. It's an iniquity. We know better, but we're not able to do better. And thank God He raised up Jesus to bless us and turning us from our iniquities. I have one last spotlight to give you in conclusion. I haven't mentioned it before. We've looked at the messengers. We've looked at the man. We've looked at the message. We've looked at the miracle. But the last thing, we haven't read about it yet, but it's the mass. The mass of people that heard Peter's preaching We find it in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 through 4. It says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. So these priests come and their captains and they arrest Peter and John for their preaching. They arrest them for this miracle that they did in the name of Jesus. But notice in verse number 4, and I'll close with this, it says, How be it, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. I don't know how many people that Peter got to preach to. It was probably 15,000, 20,000. You say that's impossible without without amplification. Well, that's not true. George Whitfield preached in an open field to upwards of forty to 60,000 people. In fact, um, Benjamin Franklin even did the math to figure out how big the crowd was just to confirm that. God gifted Peter with a voice that could carry. And of all of these thousands, many of them, many of them rejected the message Many of them would not take the responsibility. Many of them would not repent. 
They would not believe, but praise the Lord. Howbeit, many of them that heard the word believed. I wonder, of all of us that are, there's not 20,000 in this congregation. I'd say we're probably 160, 170 people sitting here hearing this story about a lame man who Jesus made to walk. But you know, if just one here this morning would say, Preacher, that's me. I am lame spiritually. I've been this way my whole life. I don't know what it is to be righteous. I don't know what it is to be holy. I don't, when it comes to honoring and glorifying the Lord and being good and doing right and feeling like I really know God in my heart, I just feel like a cripple. I've never experienced it. I don't even know what it is. But I do believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Do you know if you're that one person here today, you can be one of these that where it says, how be it, one believed the things that were spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be part of the masses. You don't have to have a movement. You don't have to have everybody else just responding in one accord. You just have to be one man who's willing to look up and listen and receive what Jesus Christ has provided, the blessing of God in saving your soul and turning you away from your iniquity. I wonder if there's one here today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God and thank you for this gospel message that Peter preached. I thank you, Lord, for these many above 5,000 that responded. What a joy. We'll see them in heaven one day. I pray that maybe there would be one, two, or three, maybe more in this service that would join this number and trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you remain seated, heads bowed and eyes closed? I'm going to ask the pianist to play softly. I'd like to give you an opportunity this morning to be one of these that respond to Jesus Christ. You don't have to understand everything about it. You just have to be like this lame man that's willing to acknowledge your condition. You're willing to look up and you're willing to listen to God's man preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ provided your salvation. He shed His precious blood on Calvary's cross. He went into the grave for three days and three nights, but Praise the Lord, on that first day of the week, early in the morning, He came up out of that tomb and He resurrected and He's sitting at the right hand of the Father even today. He looks down upon this earth in love because He loves you and He loves sinners and He wants to save you. He provided the salvation, but only you can provide the sinner. Would you be that lame man today that will receive strength and salvation in your soul before you leave this place today. Look, listen, repent, and believe. It's that simple. The Lord will save you if you'll let Him today. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's sing a verse of an invitation song. What number, Brother Taylor? Number 283, as we sing this invitation song, the altar's open.
God spoke to your heart, you'd like to come down and pray, we invite you to come. As we sing, the altar's open.